It is my great honor to introduce to you tonight our speaker for the evening, Professor Warren Binford. Professor Warren Binford has quite an incredible bio, and I urge you all to read it online. It's amazing. Um, all the law degrees from the right places. Harvard's no slouch, right? All of these incredible experiences. But what I want to let you know is in my brief time with Warren and uh, watching her work over the last several months when she first brought the news of what was happening to light, here's what I want you to know about her. She cares deeply about these children. She cares deeply about justice. She has been a child advocate for decades. This work is not new to her. The staring into the face of injustice is not new to her. And fighting on behalf of the most vulnerable amongst us is not new. She comes here this evening with information that's new to us. And I want all of us in this room to listen well to what she has to share with us as she tells us about her experience um, being a child advocacy attorney, fighting for child's rights throughout the world, internationally as well as here in the U.S. My hope for us this evening is that we will hold the space well as she shares with us what she's seen and heard and as she shares with us what she believes we can do. And I also hope that as we bear witness to the suffering of the children, that we also hold the space for her and for all of the advocacy and attorneys and those who are fighting on behalf of the children who need to go and look and watch and account for what is happening and then must walk away. And so my prayer tonight is that we continue to hold space for Warren as well and for all those who do her good work. And that we don't let her stand alone either. Um, so as we bear witness this evening, we'll bear witness with her and help hold this space with her and join her in the fight for the least of these. Warren, thank you so much for being here. Please come on up. Thank you. Thank you. So I am so upset because... I did not know this was the anniversary of Crystal Night. And I was planning to come and talk to you about the children at Clint. But I have another story. And it's from the year before. And it was when I was interviewing a mother at Port Isabella Detention Center in Texas. And the children had been separated by the thousands by our government on our behalf. And when I was asking this mother who was so, so distraught because she had been sexually abused by her uncle in Guatemala and her two little girls, one of whom was a pre-adolescent, she, she feared was at risk of being sexually abused by that same uncle and her family couldn't protect them and the police couldn't protect them. And so finally, they took the thousand mile journey to the United States in order for her to be able to protect her little girls from sexual abuse in a patriarchal society in which women and children don't find protection from sexual abuse. When they came to the border, they were taken into custody together. The border patrol agents at the facility 
pulled the mother away from her children and said, you need to go to court. And so we're going to keep the children here. And the mother said, no, I need to keep my daughters with me. I need to protect them. And they said, we need to take your children to the showers. The Border Patrol agents literally told her that's where they were taking her girls. And she refused, and they took those little girls anyway. And at the time that I had seen her three months later, she had yet to see her daughters again. And I thought, those government workers know the history of those words. They know the history of that assurance and how hollow it is. And in talking to the children who were at the facility the same time as their families, they talk about the fact that they were separated from their parents and they were taken into another part of the facility and they could not see their parents and they could not hear their parents and they didn't know why they were taken away or where their parents were. And they were kept there until nighttime. And after the night came, the children were hurried out into vans with darkened windows. And they were taken in those vans with darkened windows to giant buses with darkened windows, where the children without their parents were put into these buses and then driven through the night, mile after mile, across state lines, sometimes into two states away, where the next morning they were taken to a bus depot, and then the children were separated. Sometimes siblings were separated from another, from one another, and they were put into more vans with darkened windows. And then they were driven throughout the day in the desert, hot and tired, wondering where their parents were, and one child would be dropped off at one house, Another child would be dropped off at what appeared to be an office building. Two other children would appear to be dropped off at another home until finally at that last stop, the remaining children were dropped off in an old Walmart. And the children who were dropped off in that Walmart would enter. And to the right of them would be a giant mural of the President of the United States of America. And beneath that mural was written the words, sometimes, in order to win the war, you have to lose a few battles. And when I walked into that Walmart a year and a half ago and I read those words, I thought, what does that even mean? What is the message that we are sending our children? And then the children that we interviewed in that Walmart described being separated from their parents, being separated from their siblings. And then finally, some of the children that I interviewed were members of indigenous groups. And they would talk about the fact that there is no one else in that Walmart with 1,500 kids who almost never go outside, who travel in groups of eight, who have to walk by that mural of the President of the United States every single day, six times a day, in single-file lines. And these children from these indigenous groups would talk about the fact that there would be one other child who could speak their same language, but they had been separated from that child too, even though they might have been started out together, so that they ended up being separated from their family, 
separated from their culture, separated from their language. And then I would talk to the children about faith. And they would talk about the fact that rather than have their faith leaders there, people who looked like them, who spoke their language, who shared their faith with them, that pastors would come in from different groups, different traditions, different teachings, and that the children longed for their faiths and their leaders. And when I asked them, what keeps you going day after day? They would say, God, that I know that God would, will protect me. I know that God will protect my family. I know that God will not forsake me. And I thought, how much we have to learn from these children who, despite all of this, which is essentially a cultural genocide to take children from their families and from their language and from their culture and from their faith. And yet they continue on because their parents and their communities and their families gave them the ability to believe in a God through their individual traditions that helps them to carry on and to believe in the goodness of the world around them as, in, as insane as it was and as it continues to be. The children cried, many of them, and they were scared and they were upset and they missed their families. But it was nothing compared to the parents that we drove across the desert to interview because we talked to that mother and fathers and other mothers and we talked about what it was like to have their children taken away from them and the pain that they were experiencing. And they were absolutely distraught because like that one mom that I mentioned to you at the beginning, all of these parents were trying to protect their children from evil. They were trying to protect their children from violence. They were trying to protect their children from murder. They were trying to protect their children from becoming sex slaves, which is a practice with the, uh, the, the gangs, the criminal gangs that control the Northern Triangle. And here they were trying to save their children. And in doing so, once they crossed into the United States of America, they lost all control and were told things like, you cannot look at your child. You must sit in single file lines facing away from your child. And they would put the children in another cage where they could see their parents but could not touch them. And then they would tell the parents, you must all look away. And if your child calls for you, you must ignore them. And I thought, what is the inhumanity of this? Last night, I, doing the work that I do, it's very important that I stay strong and that I manage my emotions. My emotions run deep. But last night, my 16-year-old girl was at a friend's house. They had spent the afternoon bike riding, and it was 11 o'clock at night. My husband was asleep. Our 9-year-old was asleep. And as I laid in bed, 
I thought about the fact that I know the home that she's in, and yet I'm still worrying about her. I know she's only three and a half miles away. I know she's a licensed driver. I know she's a responsible person, and yet I could not fall asleep until I knew that she was home safe with me. And as I reflected on the enormity of what it would be like to be a mother or a father whose child had been taken away from me and I didn't know where they were and I didn't know who was caring for them, if anyone, I tried to imagine the pain of carrying that emptiness, of not being able to care for your child, not being able to account for them. And I fell asleep in a bed of tears, just imagining what these parents are going through. But what makes it worse than imagining what these parents are going through is having then gone not only to the Walmart last year, but to the Clint Border Patrol station this year. Let me tell you about Clint. It was not even on our radar screen four days before we were going to land in El Paso. The whole reason we were going to El Paso was because seven kids had died in Border Patrol custody and no child had died in government custody since 2010, almost a decade. And suddenly within one year... We knew of seven children who died, and those are just the ones that we knew of. I had been to the South Texas Family Residential Center in Dilly, Texas, the year prior, right around this time that the first child died. And I saw how sick those kids were, and I knew how much wor worse it had become in the, in the six months since my previous visit. I knew something had changed, and when I talked to the ICE personnel about it, they confirmed that there were lots of changes being made under this administration and that they had overhauled all of the leadership at this facility. And I heard from mother after mother after mother of the illness, of the lack of medical care that was being provided to their children. And in fact, we saw it with our own eyes. We saw the rashes. We saw the coughing. We heard the coughing. We saw the running noses. We knew something had changed. And then, when the lead of our group saw child after child after child die, she said, we need to put together a team, and we need to find out why these kids are dying. So the first team went to Ursula the week prior, in mid-June 2019. Ursula is where they keep kids in cages. So when you see those images of kids in cages, that's where it's happening. Ursula is a thousand-person warehouse that keeps men, women, and child in cages while they're being processed. At the time that our team went to Ursula, it was quarantined because so many children were sick. In fact, the kids were so sick at Ursula that our team sent five kids to the emergency room because they were afraid that they also were going to die. The lead of that team got the respiratory illness wound up in the hospital for six days. So by the time I landed in El Paso, we had no lead because she was so sick from what the kids were dying from. So 
three days before we're going to land in El Paso, we find out that kids are being moved into a Border Patrol station called Clint, which surprised us because this was a relatively new Border Patrol station that we'd never sent a team to. This was a Border Patrol station that was relatively small, 104 single adult men. And what we were really looking for was a roving camp in the desert because we had heard stories from children and families about being kept out in the middle of the desert and treated really humanely. This was one of those locations where we heard about parents and children being separated. We heard about parents who were being forced to keep toddlers still for nine or more hours in quiet. I don't know how many of you have had children, but when you think about having to keep children still and quiet for nine hours in a single file line where you are either standing up and holding them or sitting down and having to keep them in their in lap, that's not going to work. And they were not being fed and they were not being given places to sleep. So we couldn't find this roving camp in the middle of the desert. But what we did find is that some of the people who were there said, check out this one Border Patrol station, because we hear rumors about kids being sent there recently. So we walk in with a small team to a place that wasn't even on our radar screen, and they hand us a roster, and this roster has 351 kids on it. And we said to them, how can this be? And they said, well... We recently expanded the facility from 104 adult males to 600 detainees. But there was no sign of the expansion. And so we immediately demanded a tour of the facility. And they said, no, you have no right to a tour because children aren't even supposed to be here. And they're right we were there under the authority of Flores Council, which is the class action suit brought on behalf of children in government custody, immigrant children in government custody. And we have a right to inspect the facilities where kids are kept. But children are not supposed to be kept in Border Patrol facilities. When a Border Patrol agent apprehends a child... They're supposed to notify the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and then the Office of Refugee Resettlement makes arrangements for the child to be transferred from the Border Patrol facility to an appropriate place for the child. And because there are no children who are supposed to be there, we don't need to inspect it, right? That was their thinking. And frankly, that was our thinking too. Back in 1997... When the Flores Council agreed to only inspect the children, the facilities where the children were. But somehow we had come across 351 children in this Border Patrol facility in the arid Texas desert outside of El Paso. So we told them, bring us the youngest children, the child mothers, and the children who have been here the longest. Because when we were looking at that roster, it wasn't just 17 15, 14-year-olds, and let me assure you, teenagers are kids, and they need adult care 
just like little kids do. We sometimes forget that because of their big bodies and their intelligent minds and their movement towards autonomy, their desire for independence. But the truth is, brain scans show us that our brains are not fully mature until you are in your mid to late 20s, depending on gender. Guess which is which? (laughs) And think about everything that teenagers are going through at this point in their life where they're being called to you and pulling away from you at the same time. Their bodies are changing. The way that their mind is thinking is changing. They're starting to question the vastness of the universe and their role in it at a level that they've never done before. And they need adult care and they need adult guidance. But that day, we saw not only a number of teenagers and youth, but we saw zero, four, two, one, zero, three, seven, eight. We saw over a hundred young children, tender age children, on this list. So they started to bring the children to us. And when the first chi- when the first children who was brought to us was a little girl with red hair and white skin. And that's not how anybody pictures this child in their mind. But that's what she looked like. That's what a child in Border Patrol custody looks like because they look like all different types of people despite the stereotypes. And they are all unique individuals despite our attempts to make them a single threatening being. And this little girl had hair so matted on the back of her head that I just wanted to wrap her in my arms and I wanted to spray all of that detangler of an entire bottle in the back and do what I could to untangle, detangle that hair so she wouldn't have to cut it off. But I knew that she would have to shave her head. I knew because I'm a mom and dads know this too. You know, that there are some hair that becomes so detangled that you have to cut it off. And I thought, my gosh, how did this child's hair become like that? And on top of it, I could see little flecks of scalp throughout her hair. And she clung to the shoulder of an older girl. And this little girl smelled. She did not smell like that precious little two or three or four-year-old girl that you imagine in your head because I didn't know how old she was. But I knew she was so little, but I knew she was late toddler, early preschool age, but she didn't smell like the kids that I'm around. And I couldn't figure out what it was that she smelled like. I could smell the urine. We know that smell when you raise children. You get a sense of that smell when the children have not bathed or cleaned themselves well enough. But there were other smells. And I thought, is this, is, is this body oils? Like, is this dirt? Like, what are these smells that I, can't, that I can't identify? And she'd peek out at me, but she wouldn't say a single word. And I asked the 14-year-old, who is she? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, why are you taking care of her? She said, well, there was nobody else to take care of her. The girl who was taking care of her left. And then they asked, the guards asked, well, who would like to take care of her now? And there was a little girl. 
who is about seven or eight years old, and she said, I'll take care of her. And so then she started to take care of this little girl. But the seven or eight-year-old didn't know how to take care of her. And so she'd ask me about how to change her diapers or, you know, how to feed her. And finally, she lost interest. So I started taking care of her. Say, what is her name? And she said, well, her wristband says her name is, we'll say Mary, because it's confidential. And I'll say, and do you know where her family is? And she said, well, I'm told that she was separated by her father out in the desert, but I don't know because I wasn't there. And I said, so how do you take care of her? What do you feed her? They said, well, they don't feed us very much here. I said, well, what's not much? She said, they give us a cookie in the morning and fruit punch. And then at lunch, they give us soup and another cookie and more fruit punch. And then at dinner, they give us a frozen burrito. Sometimes it's cooked, sometimes it's not, and another cookie and fruit punch. And I said, do they give all the children the same thing? Yes. Every day? Yes. In the meanwhile, another little girl was crying across the room while my colleague, Alora Mukherjee, from Columbia Law School, was trying to interview her in a trauma-informed interview, but the little girl wouldn't stop crying. She's about seven years old. And the 14-year-old kept looking back, and I said, do you know that little girl? She said, yes. How do you know her? I'm taking care of her, too. You're taking care of both of these little girls. And she said, yes. I said, how do you feel about that? She said, well, somebody has to. But, you know, I'm just a kid, too. And sometimes it's hard. And she started crying. And she said, can I call that little girl over to me? And I said, yes, please do. And the little girl came over, crawled into this 14-year-old lap. So she had Mary on one leg and Rosalie on the other leg. And she held them in her arms. And she tried to rock them while she told me what life was like in the Clint Border Patrol facility. She told me about how babies sleep on the floor. She told me about the flu infestation. She told me about the kids being sent to quarantine. She told me about the fact that they go to the bathroom in front of each other, sometimes boys and girls together, because there are no walls. She talked about the fact that she has not had a shower since she got there. She talked about the fact that they have to sometimes bring little kids to the door after they've been separated from their family and say, who wants to take care of this little boy? He's about two. Who likes little two-year-old boys? And the kids, out of love and sometimes out of boredom, will say, I'll take care of him. She told me about how the highlight of their day is when their cell is cleaned because at least they get to go outside. Not outside in the sunlight, like our children get to go, but outside in the hallway of this Border Patrol facility and its linoleum floors. After she left, I told the Border Patrol 
that little girl needs a bath. And, they, and she needs to have her hair washed and it needs to be detangled. Would you please make sure that that happens tonight? And they said, we sure will. And the next morning, I called her back to me. And her hair was just as dirty. She smelled just as bad. And her hair was just as tangled as the day before. And I asked the Border Patrol, why didn't you give that little girl a bath? They said, we did. I said, look at her. She obviously has not been given a bath. They said, we have the paperwork. She was given a bath. It says so right here. So I called the 14-year-old back, and I said, can you tell me why it was that they say that she had a bath when clearly she, she didn't? And she said, yes. She says, you know, I was taken somewhere else, and they called and, and asked the little girl if she wanted to take a bath, and she said no. So they checked her off as having been given a bath. The next day, I called the little girl back again. She was just as dirty. She smelled just as bad, and her hair was just as tangled as the day was before, as she was the day before, except for today, the 14-year-old was gone. There was no one taking care of her. So I asked the Border Patrol, why did you not give this little girl a bath the night before? They said, we did. We have the paperwork. Second day in a row they said that. So I called another person from the cell because the 14-year-old was gone and said, can you tell me why the Border Patrol is saying this? And they said, well, a little girl was taking care of Mary, and she was only eight years old, and Mary was clinging to the little girl, and she couldn't convince her to go with the guards into the showers. And so they did not bathe her. So I called them in, and I said, you have to start taking care of this little girl. You cannot leave her here day after day after day, not feeding her, not caring for her, having her sleep on the floor, having her in the care of seven, eight, 14-year-olds, not being given a bath, not having her teeth brushed. I said, I'm going to come back tomorrow, and I want to see that she's well cared for. And I came back the next day, and I called for her, and they said that she's gone. And the fact is, I don't know if I can trust them because they had lied to me before. So these were just a handful of the children that we interviewed in the Clint Border Patrol facility. There were so many other children, and each with a story. One child told us, about being kept in what sounded like a giant warehouse. But that made no sense to us, a giant warehouse with no windows. So we drove around. We asked the Border Patrol, are you keeping kids in a warehouse? We're like, don't be ridiculous. We're not keeping kids in a warehouse. So after we were done interviewing for the day, we drove around the outside of that warehouse and or outside the Border Patrol facility, and what did we find in the corner of the, of the compound but what appeared to be a cheap, newly erected warehouse with almost no windows, just a couple of ventilation windows over in the corner. And when we came around the side, we saw nine porta-potties. We said, they're keeping kids in a warehouse. Why would they have a newly erected warehouse at a time, they said that they've expanded from 104 adults to 600. Kids are describing a warehouse. There are porta potties. 
they're lying to us again. And when we challenged them on this, they said no. And yet on the fourth day that we were there, they gave us a roster, and it had a list of the kids and their assignments. And we found out that once again, the kids were telling us the truth. And they were keeping kids not only in that warehouse and not only in the cells that we had heard about on the inside, but also they were keeping kids in a loading dock. I wasn't going to be there the fourth day. We didn't even have a team on the ground the fourth day. The only reason I was there a fourth day was because another teammate, Michael, Bochenek, Michael Garcia Bochenek from the Human Rights Watch and I, had agreed to stay a fourth day in order to write up the report. But on the third afternoon when we were interviewing the children, some of the children were very upset. And they described guards yelling at them and taking away their bedding. And when we asked why, what had happened, they said that there was a lice infestation in their cell and the guards had brought them two lice combs and told them to share them. What's the one thing you never do when you have a lice outbreak? And I thought, my goodness, does anybody know how Anne Frank died? What did she die from? Typhus. How is typhus spread? By lice. And so here we see these seven, eight children who have died from fevers, from flus, from respiratory illnesses, things that you would never expect children to die from in a modern industrialized country, that you would not expect children to die from these things in the United States of America. And yet, we have seven or eight of them dying while in government care. And then we have reports of them passing around, having lice infestations and passing around lice combs. But the fact is that I believe in the inherent goodness of people. And so I thought, you know what? This guard isn't really going to make those kids sleep on the cell floor tonight, sleep on that cement, that concrete. I know that lots and lots of kids have told us about sleeping on the cement and sleeping on the concrete blocks because there aren't enough beds and there aren't enough mats. But as sheer cruelty, like that can't be the United States of America. So I told Michael, I'm going back tomorrow because I can't believe that the guard would follow through with that. I think he's just incompetent you know, adult who doesn't understand how to take care of kids and he was trying to scare them, but he's not really going to make them sleep on the concrete. So I came back the next day and I started calling in children from that cell and every single one of them told me the same thing, which is that they all slept on the concrete that night. And I thought, what kind of country does this? Every single child who was verbal that I interviewed when we asked, do you have family in the United States? Do you know what their telephone number is? They would tell us, yes, I was separated from my father. Yes, I was separated from my mother. Yes, I was separated from my aunt, my adult sister, my grandma. And we'd say, do you have a telephone number where we can reach them? And they would reach into their little seven-year-old pocket and they'd pick up 
bring out a crumpled piece of paper and they'd hand it to us. And it would say 818, 650, whatever the area code was. And we would dial those numbers. And every single phone that we called had someone at the other end who loved that child and knew them and was expecting them who answered immediately or called us back within five minutes. Not one child where we tried to, where we had the telephone number and we called for them, not one child was unaccounted for. And they said, where is my daughter? How do I come get her? I will be on the next flight. Tell me where to send the money for her flight. What do we need to do to get her out? We'll send a relative right away. Every one of these children had a place to go. And yet when we asked them, how long have you been here? They'd say three days, four days, seven days, 14 days, 21 days. And when we talked to the Border Patrol about why are they here, they said they don't know. That these children don't belong there. They don't want them there. That they are parents themselves. That they recognize that everything that's happening is wrong and that they're on our side and they want us to win in our advocacy for these kids, that something is causing them to shut down the system, and they don't know what it is. I can tell you what it is, because the year prior, in 2017, we started hearing from frontline service providers on the border that they were seeing something that they had never seen before. We have had bad Border Patrol facilities for the entire duration of the history of Border Patrol. Bad Border Patrol facilities are nothing new, and it doesn't mean that it's okay, but it's like that's not what had changed. What changed is that in 2017, we received reports of children being separated from their families on a routine basis with proven family relationships, with birth certificates, with guardianship papers, with documentation of the family relationship. And they were being taken away and the frontline service providers couldn't figure out what was going on. We now know what was going on is that our government was pilot testing a new policy trying to separate children from their parents to see if it would deter immigrants from coming to the United States of America. So during this pilot test, after they started separating kids, they did an interview a survey of arriving families, and they said, did you know that if you brought your kids to the United States that we would take them away from you? And the parents said, yes. And they said, then why did you bring them anyway? And they said, because we would have died if we had stayed in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, wherever the country was, that they were running away from violence and trying to ensure their family's survival. And at least... Even if they can't be with me in the United States, I knew that at least they would be alive. So they knew that we had failed with this policy that was being piloted. So what did they do? They rolled it out. Let's make it universal. It's a failed policy. It did not deter immigration, but they went ahead and started to separate children from their parents anyway. They did it under the guise of illegality. 
But here's the problem with their argument, is that it is perfectly legal to come to the United States for the purpose of seeking asylum. It is legal under international law, and it's legal under United States federal law. And oh, for those people who are not coming to to seek asylum, who are coming here for economic reasons, it's a misdemeanor. And you know what level of misdemeanor it is? It's the same level as if you or I played our music too loud or trespassed on private property. Could you imagine living in a society where people said, your party was too loud, we're going to arrest you and detain you indefinitely, and we're going to take your children away, and we're not going to tell you where your children are or who they're with, and we're not going to let them talk to you. What kind of a civilization would that be? And yet that's what happened. And at the same time that we did this, we also said, you know what? 89% of these kids have family or other loved ones in the United States because that's what's bringing them here to begin with, most of them, is that we have a 100-year history with Central America that reached its height in the 1950s when we overthrew the democratically elected government of Guatemala because they were insisting that United Fruit Corporation pay Guatemalan workers their fair share and not steal land from Guatemalan citizens. And the United Fruit Corporation got really, really upset about the impact that would have on their profits And so they went to the United States government. At first, the United States government said no, and then there was a change in the presidency, and the next president said, yes, we will help you with this. And so the CIA, then, and this is all documented, this is not fake news, this is not paranoia or anything like that, this is all now part of the public records. We overthrew the government, and we said, but you know what, we're going to give you a lot of aid, and we're going to give you preferential treatment, but preferential treatment with regard to asylum claims, and so we've developed a very close relationship with this region. That's without getting into the fact that we then developed a very serious drug addiction in our country, which gave rise to criminal gangs, which then shipped cocaine from South America, from northern South America, all the way to the United States of America, right through Central America, which is what fuels the gangs that these children are trying to escape from. So we have this really interconnected relationship with the government. And so when you think of, you know, with, with Central America, our government and Central America have this really close relationship, which has given rise to a large population of Central American families living here in the United States and the desire to keep those families together as this instability in Central America is happening. But in, in any event, um, you know, so we, we, we have people coming to the United States legally And if they're claiming asylum, and even if they're not coming to the United States with the proper appropriate documentation with regard, you know, because they're seeking economic embitterment, what is happening is that we are punishing them so disproportionately for the crime that they've committed that we are actually trying to use these policies to scare families away from coming here by separating the children and then, frankly, treating them really badly. And so the government, the new, you know, 
the new administration said, let's start running background checks on everybody who wants to come forward and care for these children and everyone else in their household. And that created a bottleneck in our system that along with the separated children needing care started to overtax the system. And all of a sudden, we have this whole system failing because we're holding so many kids that don't need us to take care of them at all because they have families who have been in the United States for years who are all ready to take care of them. Well, the government workers on the front lines saw the problems with all this, and they said, this makes no sense. This is horrible. Like, we have no way to reunite these families because our whole apprehension system was focused on single adult males coming across the border to do seasonal work, which we welcomed for decades. We welcomed those immigrants. We looked the other way as those immigrants were coming across the border. And so what ended up happening is they had no numbers assigned to the families. So the frontline workers in McAllen, which is where Ursula is based, They said, let's create family identification numbers so that we can put these families back together and we can track where they are in the system. What do you think Washington, D.C. did when they found out that family ID numbers had been created in McAllen? Yeah, they said, shut it down, erase all that. Just erase all that. That's not the way we do things. We don't keep family ID numbers. We only keep alien ID numbers. And so basically what we did was we broke up families without any tracking, out of largely ill intent. And to this day, many of those families are still broken up. And during the time that the children were entrusted to their care, We abused and neglected them because of what I saw in Clint were happening in any house in America. Those children would have been taken away. And arguably, their caregivers would have been criminally prosecuted. And yet we say those are our heroes. So there will be an opportunity at the end of this evening for some questions and responses. But what I want you to know is that it breaks my heart that we are living in a world today where we continue to engage in the practice of forcibly separating children from their families. And it warms my heart to be here with all of you who are coming together, both within your families and as a larger family, who are engaged in praise, who are engaged in choral singing, who are celebrating the values of love, who are recognizing the history of civilization and the cruelty that we know has been committed and that you remain faithful to God and to love, and to one another. Because if we can do nothing else, we have an obligation to these children and families to bear witness to them and to give them hope and to be a light that shines brightly so that they will know 
what they've experienced at our border and in our government custody is no reflection of the best of humanity. The best of humanity is here, it's in all of you, and in everyone who remains committed to protecting these children and protecting their families so that we never again have another crystal night. Thank you.